Today's sermon is simply titled The Case for Christ. How many of you have ever heard of the title of the book from Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ? Raise your hand if you have. In fact, I know a man in our church right now that's reading it currently. That book is one of the most credible apologetics writings in modern history, I would say. Just on the claim of Jesus and his deity, or his claim to be God, his claim to be the promised Messiah. Today, my intention is not to dive into that book. It's a deep read. It's not even to refer to it again. It is simply to say that the title of the book is where I want to jump from this morning. To make a case for Christ. For just a few minutes today, I'd like to speak to you and give you some reasonable thoughts toward the validity of this whole thing called Christianity. Now, I don't know this morning. I'm assuming in this building we have people who maybe went to church when they were very, very little. And then by the time they got in elementary school, they stopped going. And now they're, you're here today because someone invited you. And so you're, you've been out, you've been de-churched for a while. Maybe there are some here who never have ex really experienced church before in their lives. But I think also we have in here those that are fluent in Christianese. You know just what to say. You understand that brother is like every dude's first name that you don't know. It's called brother. And if you're really spiritual, you got sis, you know, that you call the ladies. But you, you know, I mean, when, when we talk impu the, the impu imputed righteousness of Jesus, you're like, I, I know what that means. We talk about justification, you're like, yeah, I remember that in third grade. We have a wide variety of people here today. But may I say this, just because you grew up in church and you, and you got in trouble in Sunday school and you got kicked out of, of, of children's church or, or you went to teen camp and got sent home or whatever it was, whatever it was, just because all those things happened to, to you and Brian Kennedy, just because all those things happened to you guys, I, I had to wake him up. No. Just because those things happened to all of you, it doesn't mean that you're a believer. I don't care if your mama believes, your daddy believes, your cousin believes, or that weird uncle believes. Just because you grew up in church does not mean you're a Christian. Just the same way if I walk into a garage doesn't mean I'm a car. Okay, it's the same way. And so this morning, I want everyone here today no matter your background, no matter where you come from, I want you today to just give me a few minutes. If you're a follower of Jesus, I feel like today you will leave encouraged and you will leave today more grounded in what you believe about Jesus and his resurrection. If you are not a follower of Jesus or maybe you have some questions this morning about that, I pray and I believe that today will at least spark an interest for you. And I pray that maybe even today would be what God uses to draw you to himself as we present the case for Christ. Heavenly Father, would you be with us as we open your word today, as we, as we walk through what is the most important event in human history? God, we celebrate it today as Easter Sunday. But God, the, the impact that that one day had, that one instance had, And just as you would have it, God, Jesus rose from the dead. 
And the, the only eyewitnesses that saw it were passed out on the ground beside the tomb. What an incredible day. Open our eyes to it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number one, I want us to see this. In the case for Christ is number one, a case for the word. A case for the word. Now, I have my favorite Bible. I don't, we are spoiled rotten in the United States of America. I have multiple Bibles. In fact, not all pastors are this way, but I'm somewhat of a Bible snob. Um, and that's not, let's just put it this way. If you want to buy me a Bible, make sure you talk to my wife first. I either may already have it or there's something specific that I'm looking for. All right. Um, this is currently my favorite Bible. And um, man, this thing has got, it's incredible, the leather on it. I absolutely love it. it it's flexible. It opens and lays flat if you ever speak, like a laying flat Bible is incredible. Um, I'll be honest with you, I really love like, the leather. I love the smell of it, all that good stuff. My hands have been on it enough. It's like really, really, it's great. But no, not the physical attributes of that book. But this book right here, I've made a decision in my life that what this book right here says is going to guide me. I've made a decision in my life that if the Bible says it's right, that it's right. I've made a decision this morning that if the Bible says that it's wrong, that it's wrong. But may I give you this morning the fact that this book is complex. Could we at least agree that this is a complex book? This isn't an easy reading book. This isn't a book you pick up and take on vacation with you because you want to leave encouraged and it's really easy read. And, you know, Nicholas Sparks wrote like three books in here. Um, this is not one of those books. This is a complex book. How many of you have been reading this book before and you're like, I got no idea what it's talking about right there. Sure. How many of you ever, I'll just be honest with you. How many of you ever been reading it and been like, now surely that's not what it really means. I've been there. It's a complex book. In fact, 35 authors that we know for sure wrote portions of the scripture. While there are a few more books remaining where the author is unknown, I'm not even giving you Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. But it's safe to say that approximately 40, 35 for sure, but approximately 40 human authors wrote this book. So these 40 or so authors wrote from different regions of the known world at the time, during different times and seasons of their lives, and they all wrote from their perspective yet all under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, they spoke, this is how prophecy came, this is how the Bible came, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So these 35 to 40 human authors that penned the words of this book they, they were moved, whether knowingly or unknowingly, by the Holy Spirit of God to pin down the words that they penned. And these 40 authors spanned approximately 1,500 
years. Now, in Bible years, we don't think of 1,500 as being a lot. But our country has only been in existence for less than 300. That's right, right? I'm doing my math right? All right, cool. Don't want to make an erroneous statement here. Our country's been in existence less than 300. So 1,500 years spanned. And that's the most generous account of the authorship of the Bible. And I'll be honest with you. It sounds unbelievable that 40 different people over five United States lifetimes contributed to a book. And here it is. To the skeptic this morning, I'm sure you could say there's no way that this book is valid if 40 different people over 1,500 years contributed to the final product. And while on one hand I understand your argument and I hear your argument, may I flip it and say, I see no other explanation how 40 different authors over 1,500 years somehow wrote in a cohesive style, if you truly study your Bible within context, they wrote in a cohesive style throughout Genesis all the way to Revelation. And for 1,500 years from different regions of the world and different time periods and different experiences and different perspectives, 40 different people contributed over 1,500 years to this completed work. And may I say to the skeptic this morning, there is no other explanation than this is a supernaturally inspired book. There is no other explanation this morning. To believe that it's not supernaturally inspired actually takes more unreasonable faith than to believe that it is. I want you to think this morning at how crazy it would be to pull off a 1,500-year scam. I want every skeptic in the room to listen to me. How could you pull off? I mean, Aunt Becky couldn't even pull off a scam this good. Her husband just got out of jail. Boom. Anyway, if y'all don't know about Aunt Becky, you need to look it up. You're going to lose some respect. Anyway, 1,500-year um, scam. If, if, if we want to come to the conclusion that this is just a book of fables and, and this is just a book of, of whatever, then we must say that 1,500 years and 40 human authors conspired with no technology conspired for 1,500 years to put together a book of falsehood, to put together a book that doesn't mean anything, to put together a book full of lies. And this morning, may I appeal to your reason, may I appeal to your skepticism this morning and say I'd be far more skeptical of someone, uh, of someone claiming that this Bible is not supernatural than I would be to of someone claiming that this Bible is supernaturally inspired of God. In fact, in our frailties and our digital limitations, there is absolutely no way this book was put together over 1,500 years by 35 to 40 different people and came to the cohesive conclusion that this Bible is. This morning, I want to just give you the case for the word 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You've probably heard this verse before, these verses. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness. By the, by the way, if you're used to shallow church, you're used to shallow preaching, you're used to shallow Bible study, it says that all scripture is profitable, number one, for doctrine. Doctrine. Look at verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This morning, I believe firmly that this book is the truth. I believe this book is to be the standard by which I live my life. I believe this book, not culture, should determine what I think is right and what I think is wrong. I believe that this book should be the standard by which Keystone Church operates. If it's in this book and the Bible presents it and the Bible gives examples of it and the Bible affirms it, then we affirm it. If the Bible stands against it, lovingly we stand against it lovingly if the bible whispers about it we whisper about it if the bible yells about it we yell about it the bible the trustworthy word of god we believe it to be the standard by which we operate our lives our homes our churches and now this morning if that be true if this book truly is supernatural If this book truly is inspired, breathed by God, the Holy Spirit moving upon human authors, then there are some claims that are made within this word, within this book, that demand our attention. And so secondly, I want us to see the case for Christ. The case for Christ. St. John, which is one of the four Gospels, John begins his Gospel writing these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He continues to explain in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John claimed in his supernaturally inspired gospel of John that Jesus Christ came uh, to live on this earth and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Jesus makes this claim in the same book, John chapter 10, down in verse 28. Jesus makes this claim, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Listen this morning, if number one is true, if the Word of God is supernaturally inspired, the claims that Jesus made in Scripture must be dealt with. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be God. And in the Jewish religion, in fact, still today, in the Jewish religion, they are seeking and looking for the Messiah. And Jesus shows up and basically says, I'm him. I'm him. He makes a very bold Claim. Paul said it like this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Think about that statement. Paul, speaking of Jesus, says that Jesus didn't think that he was doing anything wrong by claiming to be equal with God. It was like just a reality for him. He wasn't robbing God of any of his deity by Jesus saying, I am God. Think about that statement. He was in the form of God. He was Jesus incarnate. He was God incarnate, Jesus, Emmanuel. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John chapter 8, verse 57, I'm sorry for scripture overload on you this morning. Then the Jews said to him, are you not yet 50 years old? And have you seen Abraham? Jesus made the claim of seeing Abraham. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now if you're a member of Keystone Church or you've been attending for a few months, you know that we just left a series on the life of Moses. And you know that we, we were speaking about the fact that Jesus or that God appeared to him as the I am. And we spoke about that name, Yahweh, four letters that they couldn't even translate. In fact, Bible translators throughout the years have shied away from even translating that word. In fact, in, in most English versions of the Bible, you won't find that word. Jesus in John in chapter 8 says, before Abraham was, I am. No wonder he made the Jews mad. No wonder Jesus got under the skin of the religious Pharisees because he made every claim to be God. In fact, he made those underhand digs. He made those in-your-face, somewhat passive-aggressive digs of like, I'm telling you that I am God. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, in our series in the book of Mark, we, find, we find, find that Jesus not only healed the paralytic man, which would have shown his power, but he also forgave the paralytic of his sins, claiming to be the Savior of the world. And if we're honest this morning, I just scratched the surface of the claims that Jesus made about who he was. There are many, many other instances in Scripture where Jesus personally claims to be God or where one of the writers of the Bible claims that Jesus is God. And once again, if this book, if number one is true, if this book be true, then we must take the claims that Jesus and others made about Jesus very, very seriously. He claimed this morning to be the perfect, sinless Son of God sent by His Father to reconcile sinful men to their creator. He claimed to be the Messiah, the one who was prophesied and promised to the Jewish people throughout the entire Old Testament. That is a bold claim. That is a bold claim this morning that Jesus makes. And so we get, we've given you the case for the word. We've given you the case for Christ, but how about the case for the resurrection this morning? The case for the resurrection. As history and scripture has told us for centuries, 
Jesus' claims and, and, and many, many of Jesus' statements were rejected by many. They were accepted by some. We know that Jesus was hung on the cross out of the response of the crowd yelling, Crucify him! We know that history tells us that he was crucified on a cross and that his body, according to scripture, was taken from that cross and a man named Joseph allowed his, the body of Jesus to be placed in a tomb that he owned, a borrowed tomb. In Matthew chapter 28 and verses 5 and 6, but the angel answered and said to the women, as Tim mentioned earlier, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay this morning. You and I could hop on a plane at the Raleigh-Durham airport. And within just a few hours, we could land in the Holy Land. And we could hop off that plane and say, the first place I want to see is the empty tomb. And a probably Jewish tour guide who does not believe in Jesus will more than likely be the person that would walk you and say, history says that right here is the tomb where Jesus lay. It's just a known fact in the Holy Land. It's not even a debate, even with those who have not accepted Jesus. If you were to go and you were to, to get off the plane in the Holy Land, I'm going to do that one day, I promise. And I'm going to go see the tomb. Zach, I can't wait, dude. We're going to do it. One year you're coming to Easter, and it's all going to be on the screen, and I'm preaching from the empty tomb. One year. Hang out at the church long enough, it's going to happen. Me and Zach are going to, we're going He's going to film it. I'm going to preach it. But history says, unbelievers, people who have not accepted Jesus say, this is the tomb where Jesus was buried and where he rose from. And may I say this morning that the truth of the resurrection, it matters. It matters very, very much. It matters, and it should matter to you as a believer. It should matter to you as a, an unbeliever or, a, or one who is searching. And, and here's why it matters. Number one, because Jesus predicted it. It matters. The resurrection matters because Jesus predicted it. Had Jesus not risen from the dead, then the many, many claims that he made throughout his earthly three-and-a-half-year ministry, uh, he predicted his death, he predicted his resurrection, those claims would have been unvalidated. Invalid claims. Of Jesus saying, hey, if they tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go away, but I'll be back three days later. Probably the, most, the, tra the tragedy of Scripture is that over and over again, Jesus told his closest followers that he was going to rise again three days later. And none of them were there when he did it. But it mattered because Jesus predicted it. In fact, Jesus' entire life and ministry was marked by fulfillment of Old Testament pro uh, prophecy and then future fulfillment of New Testament prophecy. Jesus' entire life was 
They said this was going to happen, and now I'm doing it. They said he was going to do this. I am the he. The entire New Testament is Jesus fulfilling the promises that were made in the past and the future. So this matters. The resurrection of Jesus Christ matters because Jesus predicted it. But secondly, it matters because it perfectly separates Jesus. It perfectly separates Jesus. There has never been another. Period. Now there have been others who have led great groups of people. There have been others who taught great crowds and who wowed people with their teachings. There have been others who have died for what they believe in. Certainly there have been many others. However, this morning, there has never been another who died, was buried, and then rose again from the grave. Name me one. Name me one. I've got my Tupac theories, but it's yet to be proven. So name me one. There, there is, there has never been, there has never been another who has died and was buried and rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ alone has risen in victory from the grave. That is the great separator. That is the great separator. That Jesus rose again. That Jesus didn't stay in the grave. That we, that we today don't go and uh, once a year and pray towards a grave of our Savior. But we, we, if we're going to go anywhere and pray to anything, we'll go somewhere and pray to an empty tomb. Because he's no longer there. It matters this morning because it separates Jesus from every other Savior that's ever been. And the resurrection matters, thirdly, because our lives portray it if you're a believer this first almost entire part was really geared towards those who are skeptics or unbelievers this last part i want you if you are a follower of jesus i want you to tune in as we close because your lives portray it it matters because the christian believes that jesus rising from the dead empowers us to live resurrected abundant christian lives let me say it like this jesus died to forgive our sins. But then he rose to give us a life of victory over our sin. Think about the truth this morning. Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, buried. But he rose to show us and to give us a life of victory over our sin. John chapter 10 and verse 10. I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly some versions say to the full listen this morning the resurrection of jesus matters because as followers of jesus our lives should portray should portray the resurrection of jesus on a daily basis colossians chapter 3 the first verse says if then you were raised if then you were raised with christ if then you were raised with christ Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. And I can't even get into the theological implications of this text. 
When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I want us to notice, I want to notice two statements in that text. If then you were raised with Christ. And then verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, our resurrected life. Listen, believer, follower of Jesus this morning, may I say that if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, then he has given you a resurrected life. You can live a life of freedom. You can live a life of victory. You can live a life of resurrection this morning. You no longer have to live a defeated life. Jesus didn't live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, rise from the grave in victory so that his followers would mope around and live from day to day in defeat after defeat after defeat. No, Jesus died and he rose again so you could live a life of abundance. So you could live a life to the full. That you could live a life with victory over the power of sin in your life. Jesus rose today to give you abundance life. Life to the full. Someone said, hey, if you're saved, you ought to tell your face about it, right? You ought to tell your spirit about it. This morning, if you've accepted Jesus Christ and he is your Lord and he is your Savior this morning, Jesus rose so that you could live a life of victory. Are there always victories? Certainly there's some defeats. Are there always mountaintops? Certainly there's some valleys. Did you ever wonder, though, the only way there is a mountaintop is if there is a valley? Valleys create them. Jesus rose to give you life. The case for the resurrection, it matters this morning. The resurrection of Jesus matters because Jesus predicted it, because it perfectly separates him from every other, and because our lives portray it. To the believer this morning, I simply ask you this, are you living a resurrected life in Christ? Are you living your life to the full? Or is your life marked by the same old, same old religious activities or not? Marking off your religious checklist or not? Are you simply a Sunday morning Christian? I call them like country music Christians. They, never mind, I'm not even going to give my lyrics. I'm going to be good. I got a bunch of them. I'm going to be good. Forget we're on live stream. But may I say to the believer this morning, take the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead and apply it to your life. Rise in victory. You're a child of God. Rise in power because you're a child of God. Rise in abundant living because you're a child of God this morning. And leave here today encouraged that, listen, if Jesus Christ could burst through that tomb, then there's nothing in my life that he can't overcome. There's nothing that's going to go on in my life that Jesus can't rise in victory over. It's resurrected living to the unbeliever this morning to maybe the skeptic to the doubter my heart's desire is that maybe today something made you think may I say this if the Bible is true 
if Jesus' claims are true, then this is a life and death matter. Hey, listen, if they're not true, why'd I go buy this new shirt to come to Easter Sunday for? If it's not true, let's pack up. You think there's like lucrative money in this or something? John chapter 3 and verse 18 says this though. He who believes in him is not condemned. That's good news. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. May I say this morning that Jesus wants to bring you out of condemnation. And he wants to bring you into a life of abundance with no condemnation. You say, how can that be? It's because Jesus was condemned in your place. It's because Jesus was condemned on that cross. It's because Jesus was condemned when his father turned away. It's because Jesus was condemned when he became your sin on the cross. Jesus wants to literally rescue you from a future in hell and give you an eternity with him forever. And I make this appeal to you today, and I want you to listen and listen close, especially those who you know that, that, that something is speaking to you, that maybe the Holy Spirit is working, or you don't even know what the Holy Spirit is, but something is speaking to you. I appeal to you today that you must do something with this claim. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he is none of who he says he is. Let me make that statement again just to make you uncomfortable. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he is none of who he says he is. It is no good man or prophet who would falsely claim to be the Son of God. No good man would claim to be the Messiah, knowing he was not. In fact, that would not be a good man or a prophet, we would call that person a scam artist and a liar. Let's just call it like it is this morning. Jesus is either exactly who he claimed to be or he is a fraud. I'm bringing it all the way down to your level this morning. Jesus is who, who he claimed to be or he is a fraud. There is no fence riding. Friend, fraud. There's no fence riding with Jesus. I call on you today. I'm, I'm, this is as harsh as I've ever been probably in this Easter resurrection. Amen. I call on you this morning to either accept him or reject him. That's a little harsh. But I throw the fleece out there similar to what Gideon did in the Old Testament. God, I need you to show me something. I'm going to throw my fleece out there. I'm gonna, I'll do that. God, show me something today. I call on those to either accept Jesus or be willing to reject him. 
You see, I know where I pastor. I know we're in the Bible Belt. I know we have a lot of Sunday school Christians. And by that, I put Christians in quotes. I understand we got a lot of people to say, well, I grew up in church. I must be good. This morning, I ask you, what have you done with Jesus? Is he your Lord? Have you given your life and your heart to him? I call on you this morning to be honest. Accept him or reject him. You say, Josh, I'm still working through that. That's fine. But I want you to understand that at some point in time in your life, you're going to have to come to that conclusion. It's either true or it's a lie. Is that fair this morning? It's either true or it's a lie. See, Josh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about that. Well, I'd love to talk. I would absolutely love to talk to you. I would love to take my favorite Bible and I would love to just look through it. And let's, you say, well, I think there's a contradiction from here to here. Let's do it. Let's look at it. Let's, let's, let's go to lunch. Let's go to coffee. You have coffee. I have water. Come hang out at the office. I got gummy bears back there. <laughs> Listen. It's life or death. The radical claims of Jesus... They must be taken seriously. It's life or it's death. Would you bow your heads this morning? Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at keystonerdu.church. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media and outreach ministries at Keystone, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Durham and around the world.